This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. A program for and about America's 78 million baby boomers. Here's your host, Freddie Bell. Hi, everybody. I'm Freddie Bell, and welcome to New Beginnings. We'll talk to Libel Sternbach this week. Also, Joe McKenzie is here. We'll look at what happened this week and also share today's words to the wise. Our show for this second weekend in December is underway. Joining us right now is an individual who's no stranger to our airways. He is with AARP Minnesota, is the Associate State Director of Community Engagement. And uh, I'm thinking that because we're into December, Jay Happala, that uh, holiday scams are probably on the agenda. Uh, Is it the same old scam or is there something new that's happening that's dealing with Santa Claus itself? Well, there's always something new. I don't know if we got to look out for old St. Nick coming down your chimney or anything like that. But the scammers, they take a special focus this time of year because they know whether you're ready for holiday season or not, it's here. (laughs) So there's no ho, ho, ho scam. (laughs) Well, maybe you and I can think one up. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that'll be the new thing. Tell us about the Fraud Watch (laughs) Network. What do you do? Yeah, so at AARP, we listen to our members, we listen to the public, we know people are concerned about identity theft, we know they're concerned about scams, so we set up this hotline, and folks can call in and get help if they need some help navigating all these different kind of scams that are coming to their email inbox, they're coming over the phone, they're coming uh, to their mailbox out on the curb and we help people figure it out we give them help and we're and we're doing research on all of these scams so we can understand it and stay a step ahead of the con artists uh we just did a survey that was focused on the holiday season and fraud and we did some we focus on online shopping because that's what folks are doing we focus on gift cards because those are a big risk for for all of us um and we focus on some charity scams as well Wow. So can you break it down for us? What, uh, you know, I'm not too cheerful right now. (laughs) No, No, we're just giving people the information so they can have uh, a happy holidays instead of a crappy holidays. So um, it's all the information that empowers us. So um, when it comes to online shopping, our survey found that 35% of people in the United States have experienced fraud when they're looking at online ads. So, Shopping online is, it can be, it's safe, but when you see these pop-up ads that show up on your phone or your computer screen, that's where um, the fraud is happening. So be just be aware of those pop-up ads that you don't recognize. You know the websites that you go to to shop, and you can use those safely. But watch out for those strange ads that pop up. Um, the kind of companies you haven't seen before, never heard of before, even though the deal looks good, it's probably too good to be true. Uh, so you're saying don't uh, don't click on those things that just kind of pop up when you're looking for something else. Right. If you're browsing online or especially on social media, you're scrolling through and all of a sudden you see something that looks pretty cool and it looks like a great deal. But, you know, those pop up ads that just pop up on your screen that you're not looking for, those are probably too good to be true. You know, uh, we're talking with Jay Happala. He, he is a part of the Fraud Watch Network with AARP. Uh, Miss Helfinger, my wife, will tell me that uh, if you see something that looks interesting, especially when you're on Facebook, don't click on it on Facebook. Is that a good rule of thumb? 
That's pretty good advice. There's not a lot of scrutiny or, you know, sort of checks and balances for who's posting what on social media, whether it's you, me, or some scammer who's trying to, you know, collect everyone's credit card number and their personal information. What about the gift card scams? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we're spending billions of dollars on gift cards, and it's safe to give gift cards to use gift cards, but people just need to realize that there's not consumer protection. So once your money goes on to that gift card, if if someone steals it, if you lose it, you're not getting that money back. It's not the same thing of, as having money on your debit card or your credit card. Um, and, folks, this time of year, you just got to be cautious about purchasing the gift cards in the stores. So, you know, the criminals, they have ways of going to the racks and they scratch off the back of the gift card and they get the information off of it. So just be careful if you're buying gift cards if they haven't been tampered with in the store. Wow. We 20, talk- in fact, 26% of adults have had bought a gift card that didn't have any money on it. What? Yeah, about a quarter of people say that they bought a gift card and turns out there was no money on it. Oh, no. And that's buying the card right there from the store. Yeah, that's the that's the risky way that people are ending up with these gift cards that don't have money. Because on those big racks and the big stores, the cards might have been tampered with. So is there a safe way to purchase a gift card? Yeah, if you can, you know, deal directly with the retailer instead of going to those big racks, you can deal directly with the retailer, or even if you can trust the website and buy them online, you know that they haven't been tampered with by someone who just comes on into the store and starts scratching off the (laughs) back of the gift card. You also mentioned charity scams. This is a time when people are donating and fundraising and all the rest of it. Tell, Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's a great part of our culture here in Minnesota and across the country that we give to charity. Um, But the dang scammers are getting in the way and they are coming up with these fake charities. So, you know, the bottom line when it comes to giving to charity is just deal with the people you know. Even though you might see an ad advertisement that really pulls on your heartstrings, you got to do your research and not just, you know, click on the link or call the phone number just because they've... Uh, sort of captured your emotions. We got to do our research about these charities, charities that we're given to. So, can you put a holiday bow on all of this, Jay? See what I did there? So, <laughs> hey, yes. With online shopping, with gift card scams, charity scams, what is your general message to folks who are listening to you today about uh, protecting themselves and their hard-earned money? Yes, sir. And, you know, whether it's holiday season or tax season or who knows what season, the scammers are always out there. And there's a lot of money for them to steal from, you know, people who are working really hard out there to just have a little bit to get by. And so it's unfortunate in our times that we have to be so cautious. But a little bit of information goes a long way. So if you just spend this time listening to the radio this morning thinking about fraud and how you can protect yourself and how you can protect your loved ones, then, you know, stay educated. And and you can go to our Fraud Watch Network. It's online, aarp.org slash Fraud Watch Network. And you can find out about the next scams when they come up with them, and you'll make sure you don't, you know, get involved in any of those either. All right. Do you have a final thought for us this morning, Jay Hapala? Have a Merry Christmas, Freddie. How about that? Rather than a crappy holiday. That's right. Happy holidays instead of crappy holidays. All right. Thank you so much. We always uh, 
I want to say we enjoy coming, but you bring bad news, but you also give us hope, too. <laughs> we can there get out of some of this stuff. It's like how the Grinch has a happy ending, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us, Jay. Joining us now is the medical director for the state of Minnesota's Medicaid and Minnesota Care Programs, who is also a wonderful pediatrician. Say hello to Dr. Nathan Chomolo. And doctor, there's a lot of alphabets out there for the different uh, maladies affecting a, a lot of us. RSV, we got COVID-19 and the FLU, which everybody knows is flu. So with, a, with the RSV, why is that so bothersome right now impacting children when RSV has been around for such a long time? Yes, Freddie, thanks for having me again. Always, always a pleasure to join you here. Uh, and so yeah, RSV is really common. It's something that we see a lot in pediatrics in particular. Uh, it really is uh, bothersome, particularly for our youngest kids. And so typically RSV hits kids under the age of two the hardest. And, um, you know, before the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a pretty, you know, routine RSV season uh, that you would expect uh, to see uh, kids, more kids getting sick with RSV, some kids ending up in the hospital. Um, and that would usually start kind of pretty, you know, late into the fall, early winter, um, and then kind of last into the, the early part of spring. Um, so, you know, what we saw with COVID-19 was that because of things like masking, that kids were staying home uh, and not going to school, that a lot of us were staying, you know, out of uh, really crowded spaces and, and not getting together the same, that you, that first year of COVID-19 in uh, 2020 into 2021, we really didn't see uh, as many uh RSV cases that we typically do. And then we ended up when folks started getting back together again, more and more in the spring of 2021, we actually saw a kind of a really late RSV season. Um, right now, what we're seeing is a pretty early RSV season. We, we've seen an unusually high number of RSV cases in Minnesota in particular for this time of year. And the rise of cases, how fast we've seen them has been pretty sudden, um, more than we typically see as well. So is RSV deadly for the smallest of us in Minnesota? You know, it can be, uh, you know, particularly for babies who are born earlier, you know, we call preterm or who are born with low birth weight or are born with um, some underlying medical condition. You know, early on in their life, RSV can be quite serious. And then we're starting to learn more, too, that for um, our elders uh, who also might have some underlying chronic illnesses, heart diseases, lung diseases, that, you know, if they get hit with RSV, it can be pretty serious, you know, for them, too. But, you know, for uh, most of the folks, it, it presents as uh, you know a cold, sore throat, runny nose, cough. Um, it can ca- cause some wheezing and you know some difficulty breathing. But you know, for most of us, you know, if we get it, we are able to recover. It's just not pleasant while we're in there. Um, and then the fact that you know we might spread it to others, take us out of work, take us out of school. Um, and what we're really seeing too is it's really stressing our healthcare system, a system that's just you know been going through it these last several years with mm-hmm. COVID nineteen, um, and uh, you know uh, we're starting to see flu come back. Uh, we've seen you know not only uh, folks from our healthcare fields. Um, you know, get COVID-19, get long COVID or, you know, die or pass away from COVID, but, uh, you know, get just burned out and, and leave the profession altogether. And so, um, you know, our, our capacity isn't even just kind of like physical number of beds. It's really the people power that we have. Um, and to, then to add on another surge of, 
a new infectious disease just has, has really put a strain on us. And so I think all these things coming together is really what has us worried about RSV is that, you know, uh, there are folks in our community that are susceptible to getting serious cases, but even for those that aren't, they might not be able to get, you know, the care that they need to help them have a, a more uh, comfortable case. Um, they might not get the care that they need or the answers they need to help protect them from spreading it. Um, and, and that's the real concern. Everyone, we're talking with Dr. Nathan Chomolo. We're talking about the triple-demic, the RSV, the flu, and COVID-19. Give us an idea of what we can look forward to or uh, try to help avoid as we go into the winter. Last year, we were talking about it being the the blizzard of diseases with COVID-19. Where do we stand for 2022 into 2023? Well, you know, when it comes to RSV, you know, we really don't know yet what this kind of rapid surge in cases will mean for later in the winter, whether, you know, we're seeing just kind of an earlier season, right? And that will it'll kind of keep her off like it usually does, or if um, it will start to plateau and we'll just kind of stay at this level for a while, or, uh, you know, what we're worried about is that it's just a more severe season. And so it's not so much that it's going to go follow its usual course, uh, that it, it, but that it's going to stick around at this high level um, for a longer period of time, putting a lot of stress on uh, our kids, our, our families, and our healthcare system. Uh, and then we're starting to see flu increase pretty rapidly right now. In fact, we haven't seen this much flu activity at this time uh, of the year in Minnesota in the last 10 years. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of folks out there that have what we call, you know, an influenza-like illness, which could be a combination of any number of respiratory viruses. Um, testing isn't as you know rapidly or readily available for flu, and so we don't always get to diagnose it the same. Uh, but that's certainly you know a, a concern too, and you know we forget I think because of COVID nineteen that you know flu is a significant player in, in as far as making people sick and even you know. Uh, killing people, taking people from us early. And so that's something that we need to keep a close eye on. And, you know, thankfully right now uh, with COVID, we're seeing lower transmission. Um, we've seen some lower levels in our wastewater um, over the last several weeks. And, you know, the, the hope is, um, you know, that, that that kind of stays lower, but we've seen in the last several uh, holiday seasons, you know, spikes of COVID-19 uh, up here, and we are seeing um, some new variants of concern out there uh, that could change, you know, our ability to, to be protected. And so, uh, you know, th- these are all things that we need to be considering as we're starting to get together uh, for the holidays, making our plans um, and thinking about how we're going to be navigating out there. Great prescription. That's Dr. Nathan Chomolo from the state of Minnesota's Health Department. Thanks for being with us this morning. Always a pleasure, Freddie. Take care. You too. This is a news-oriented broadcast, and all information is educational in nature is not intended to be legal, securities, tax, or insurance advice. Please consult with the appropriate professional before acting on information heard during the broadcast. You're listening to New Beginnings. New Beginnings with Freddie Bell. Now let's turn our attention to financial health and retirement with Libel Sternbach, Amazon's best-selling author of Living with Financial Anxiety and Authenticity. He is a great man. I enjoy talking with you, Libel. We've been talking about finding the right financial advisor. And Libel, I like what you said at the outset of our earlier conversation. Uh, It was something like, uh, find the person who can work for you that you're comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. you want to find the person who you can work with, who you're comfortable with, um, who can can provide the outcome that you want. So what's, what's the difference between a financial planner, Libel, and a broker, and an investment advisor, and an insurance salesperson? Well, a financial planner is something that some states are starting to regulate the term. There's starting to be some recognition 
that not everyone who provides, you know, investment advice or sells anything in the investment, you know, financial world, that they necessarily engage in planning work. So when we think of, you know, budgeting and we think about, you know, how much money do I need in retirement or when should I take money out of my accounts? Um, these questions of, you know, that are really multidisciplinary, right? They, they cross over so many different things and they cover, you know, investments and taxes and estate planning and income planning and insurance. That really comes into the sphere of planning rather than any one of these niches or any one of these licenses. And for a long time, it would be, you know, an insurance agent or a stockbroker in order to get business would offer that as kind of like an add-on. It was like the free, they would give you a free plan in order to get you into the office. And how good that plan was varied from office to office and how much work they did varied from advisor to advisor. But lately, and there's been a very big push to make this happen by the Financial Planning Association, by XY Planning Network, which I'm part of, and by these financial planners, these people who are dedicated to the craft of financial planning, to make it something that's regulated, to make it something that's recognized as its own field. And that if you want to say you do planning work, you need to have you know some kind of qualification to be a planner. And you actually have to engage in holistic planning, that there's a definition to it. So much so to the point that states are starting to take the viewpoint that if you say you do comprehensive financial planning or holistic financial planning, that means you do investment management, which means that you can't be an insurance agent or a stock, or, well, it could be a stockbroker, but not an insurance agent or, you know, an unlicensed person. You actually have to be licensed in order to say you do holistic planning because of this recognition. So when we look at those, the difference of those terms, right? We have, you know, a, a, a stockbroker, right, or a broker-dealer, someone who literally just brokers uh, the buying and selling of companies. That's what they do. And whether it's a company or a bond or, you know, an exchange-traded product like, you know, a, a stock or a uh, an ETF or a mutual fund, right, their job is to broker the transaction. And they're called a broker-dealer because they broker it and they deal in it. And it's two sides of that transaction. One person's buying, one person's selling. And generally, they engage in both halves and make money on it. An investment advisor is the other side of the industry. These are people who their entire business is really to give advice on investments. They do do buying and selling, but their business model isn't based on buying and selling. So whereas a broker dealer usually makes a commission on each transaction or they charge a fee on each transaction, an investment advisor will typically charge either a flat amount or they'll charge a percentage of assets or an hourly fee. They charge something else other than per transaction. Uh, and that is typically what investment advisors do. And they have been, for the most part, you know, the two sides of the investment industry. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have insurance. Um, and insurance, they will, they will take your assets, right? They will take your money. They will invest them, sort of, but you don't necessarily get to tap into it like an investment. Although in order to attract assets in bull markets where the market's going up and people are like, why am I going to lock up my money for 10 years and not be able to access it and not get the returns that the stock market is getting? 
the insurance industry has created more stock-like products, more investment-like products so to attract money. Um, but insurance agents, right, they, they get paid a commission for the most part. Not all insurance agents. There's a new crop of insurance agents that get paid assets under management, uh, so sort of like an investment advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, right, they get paid a commission for selling a transaction, for selling a product. Um, and those are the players in our in our sphere. There is another group, um, which I'm kind of part of, which are financial coaches. And these are people who kind of don't participate in any one category. They don't make commissions. They don't sell products. Some do investment advice. Some don't. Like I specifically stay away from investment management for the most part. But we provide, you know, investment advice. We provide financial planning. We or we provide coaching and stay away from investment management. We just teach you how to do the things, but we don't actually do it for you. Those are kind of the different players. So those are the players. So when I'm if I'm shopping, I'm going down and I'm going from planner to planner. Should I expect to have to uh, pay for this financial planning service? Some of them will charge you up front for it. So you have like fee only or hourly based where they're only getting paid the money that you pay them or they're getting paid for managing your assets. And so for the ones who are getting paid by you, where they, you know, you pay them like a lawyer or, you know, uh, an accountant, there are financial planners who get paid that way. You will pay for the financial plan. There are also in people who will manage your investments, but they separate out that financial planning and they say, listen, to create a solid financial plan, right? It's going to take me, you know, 20, 30 hours to do. I'm going to charge up front for that, right? Even though that's supposed to be how I get my business, it's a lot of work. And if you want the free one, you can get a free one for, you know, I'll put an hour or two into that for free to get your business. But if you want me to do any real planning, we're going to, you know, I'm going to charge you 1500, 3000, 5000. I mean, I've seen, I've seen $10,000, uh, for financial planning fees. So should you work with the fee only financial planner or an advisor who makes a commission? And what's the difference between the fee only and a fee base? It sounds the same. So fee only and fee base, and they do sound the same. So they, and, and the difference is subtle. It's very, very subtle. Fee based means that they generally only make their money from the fees that they charge you. So whether that's for managing your assets, they're charging you for managing your assets or for financial planning, right? And they get paid for that. However, because they're fee-based, that means there is the potential that they're getting paid a commission for something, which means they may have what's called outside business activity where they're selling you an insurance product. Technically, part of their financial plan is not part of their investment advisory agreement with you. It's just something separate that they're getting paid on, and that's why they're called fee-based, not fee-only. Fee only is I don't get paid a commission on anything. I don't get any kickbacks. It's kind of like, you know, you know that the only way I'm getting paid is from you. Very interesting. So we're talking with Libel Sternbach and we're talking about advisor selection. I'll just phrase it that way. And I I have a question, but I think I may have already answered it. The question is, do all planners and advisors have to be registered the Securities Exchange Commission? But because you've also said that insurance brokers also participate in this pool? I guess the answer is no. That's correct. The vast majority of them, in fact, are not registered with the SEC. 
There are a lot more insurance agents than there are, you know, investment advisors. And broker dealers aren't registered with the SEC. They're registered with FINRA. So the answer is no. And if they're, if you wanted one place to go look up and see how someone's licensed, well, good luck because they may or may not be on those websites. <laughs> and that doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong, right? It may just be that they're, you know, a financial coach and they're not crossing that line that requires them to be registered. There's also, by the way, there are people who specialize in uh, what are called accredited investors. So they only work with people who, you know, have, I'm not going to go into the technical definition of it, but people who meet this definition of an accredited investor, and if they work with less than 20 of them or 25 of them at any given time, they do not have to be registered. And they can be giving them advice and doing things. And, you know, depending on how they structure their business, they may be able to avoid having to be licensed or be registered. Interesting. So let's talk now. Okay. So we understand that aspect of it. So, how often, once you've got that advisor on board, assuming that's what your decision is, how often should you meet with this advisor? How often? The the answer is how often you need, right? You want to meet with your advisor uh, as often as necessary, but no more. So every advisor is going to have their own process and you want to know what that process is up front, right? They should be able to clearly tell you, we are going to meet, you know, this is how many times we're going to meet, or, you know, this is the scheduled times we're going to meet. And if you need, you know, a phone call or a meeting in between, this is how we do it. And this is how many you get or whatever, right? This is my availability to you. This is my commitment to you. Uh, so you want to know what that is up front. There are some advisors who, right, who are, they're meeting with you every week, every month, right? Some are only every quarter. Some are only once a year. So you want to know that. And it may change over time as well, right? Like I, you know, I have people that I, in the beginning, I'll meet with them every single week. But then, you know, once they get things going, it's, you know, once a quarter maybe or once a year or it's whenever they decide that they want to meet with me. Um, so you really got to speak to your advisor and you got to make sure it's something that you're comfortable with, right? You need to be comfortable reaching out to your advisor and you need to be comfortable with the amount of times that you're meeting with them. But I'd say more important than anything, you need to feel like that if you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, that you can reach out to your advisor and they're going to talk to you and that they're going to be able to calm you down and, you know, keep you <laughs> from making rash decisions. Cause that's, at the end of the day, right, that's what we're paying them to do, right? We're paying them to keep us from making costly mistakes to our retirement. Before we get too far, we want to make sure that uh, you, we can share some resources with our listeners on where they can get information to help them to decide on whether or not uh, an advisor is somebody that they need to bring on to their team. Tell us about the resources that you offer, Libel. So yieldsforyou.com, go to the classes section. I have a class on how to choose a great financial advisor. Highly recommend that you go through that. I also really recommend that you go through the simple path to a golden retirement that I've got on my website as well. Because when you go through the how to hire a great financial advisor, you're going to understand how, you know, this world of financial advisors and what you're hiring. And then uh, the other side of that, you have, okay, now I know how to hire someone. What am I hiring them for, right? You need to know what you're hiring them for. And I think that, you know, kind of the biggest, biggest lesson that I've learned over the years is that as financial advisors, we make this assumption that people know what they need. But the truth is, is that 
you know, you retire and nobody gives you this handbook that says, here, here are the steps that you got to take in order to retire, right? You got to, you know, apply for social security, you got to apply for Medicare, and you got to look for, you know, you know, a Medigap or, you know, whatever you want to call it. There are things you need to do um, and that you should do. And that's kind of what my, you know, the simple path to golden retirement is, is designed to help educate you of what those steps are and enough questions so that you know, like, okay, I need to look more into this. I need to look more into that. I'm going to go to a financial advisor and these are the questions I'm going to ask him, right? I'm going to ask him, you know, how do I, you know, what do you think of this for social security, right? Or I'm this years away from Medicare, right? How do I deal with health insurance before Medicare kicks in, right? How are we going to pay for that? Thank you, Libel. We look forward to hearing from you again next week. His website is simply libelonfire.com. That's libelonfire.com. And right now it's time for It Happened This Week. In 1791, do you remember, legendary composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart died at the age of 35. In 1876, the Stilson Wrench gained a patent by D.C. Stilson in Somerville, Massachusetts. The Stilson Wrench was the first practical pipe wrench. In 1931, Chicago Black Sox outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson died. And for those of us who are beer lovers, in 1933, Utah became the last of 36 states to ratify the 21st Amendment to the United States Constitution. The move ended prohibition in the United States after a 14-year dry spell. In 1955, the black community of Montgomery, Alabama, launched their boycott of the city's bus system. Their actions came in response to the arrest of Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her seat on a segregated bus for a white man. And in 2013, South African icon Nelson Mandela, who led the country's revolution against apartheid, died at the age of 95. Mandela, who spent 27 years in prison before attaining freedom in 1990, became the first black South African to hold the office of president from 1994 to 1999. Mandela gained international acclaim for his tireless efforts in promoting peace and racial unity. He received more than 250 honors in his lifetime, including the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993. It happened this week, and you're listening to New Beginnings. I'm Freddie Bell. It's now time to welcome the Reverend James Stacy at Unity South Twin Cities. They have two services each week at 9 a.m. and at 10.30. The first is interactive and the second service a more traditional service. We now join the Reverend James Stacy as he begins a lesson entitled, Unity, the Wonder Drug. We join that service already in progress. The Wonder Drug. There's so much talk in the media and the world about drugs and the detrimental effects. Then on the other hand, we have all of the miracle stories about the healings that have taken effect by helpful prescriptive drugs and other forms of cure. But this wonder drug that I've been talking about is very simply the activity of helping others and creating an other focus 
that is being able to shift, much like Holly's song just did, to shift our attention from our own beating heart to the beating heart in all people. Becoming aware of the other, of others, and being able to create a focus in mind that sees others. Considerable scientific research is outlined in the recent book that I've been working with, The Wonder Drug, by Drs. Stephen Rezevciak and Anthony Mazzarelli. Let's look at their prescription for the seven steps we can take now. Now, we're going to have to take a fast jet ride through these seven steps due to the time we have to be together. But I have written in your bulletin insert that you'll find where my bulletin went, but the insert on one side, it speaks of our current food drive for Veep down in the lobby, and on the other side, it has these seven steps to take now. The first step is to start small. Don't you love it? Start small. The authors emphasize serving others, being altruistic, creating an other focus, does not mean giving up your current job. It does not mean selling your house and living out of your car so that you can put all of your assets toward helping others that much of the benefit of which they speak benefits to our physical well-being, our mental well-being, our sense of purpose, our joy and happiness in life, can all be achieved through simple, small steps we can make on a daily basis to help others, to support others, to share life. With others. Adam Grant talks about the 100 hour rule. That's the number of hours per year one needs to devote to altruism to get benefits to one's health and well being. That threshold holds up in scientific research that has been conducted in Japan, Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. In a longitudinal study, that means where they follow the participants for a considerable period of time. In a longitudinal study of 13,000 U.S. adults, it was at least 100 hours a year of volunteering that was linked with a reduced risk of death, physical functioning limitations, and also created higher physical activity, positive affect or emotion, optimism, purpose in life, and then decreased depression and loneliness. The authors of our book suggest not to do 100 hours in one week, but to divide it over the year, just as you wouldn't take a medication for the year all at once on one day. And if you divide that 100 hours a year over the course of the days of the year, it's only 
16 minutes per day that you can devote toward serving others. That's a reasonable dose indeed. And there is support for the effectiveness of small doses of helpfulness. Research from the University of Oxford indicates that just a seven-day routine of small acts of kindness can actually boost happiness in measurable ways. So if you stick with it just for seven days, happiness may kick in for you by the end of the week. That's a pretty fast result. The second step in our prescription is to be thankful. Well, I think we know that already in we know that truth already in unity. Our longtime friend Loretta Taggart, whose life we celebrated yesterday, placed a strong emphasis on the power of gratitude. This book, The Wonder Drug, attempts to review scientific evidence for the power of gratitude to create measurable benefits in the grateful individual. Authentic happiness author Martin Seligman came up with a practice called gratitude visits. Gratitude visits. Think of someone for your pa- from your past for whom you didn't quite express sufficient gratitude way back when and then pay them a visit to express it fully now. Seligman has found in his research that it increases happiness and well-being for both the giver and the receiver of the gratitude. Now, if you think it might be embarrassing for you and others to, excuse me, if you think it might be embarrassing for you and the other, consider this research from the University of Chicago. Participants were asked to write a gratitude letter and also predict how surprised, happy, or awkward the receiver would feel. Researchers then checked in with the recipients to see how they actually felt. The results were that the letter writers underestimated the surprise and happiness it would bring to the receivers and way overestimated any awkwardness or embarrassment the receivers might feel. In fact, the typical receiver in the study felt no awkwardness or embarrassment at all. Your prescription, step two, is to write at least one sincere thank you note or email per week and send it to someone who really deserves it. Now we're ready for step three. Be be purposeful. Purposeful. Australian psychologist Viktor Frankl wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, about his experience in the Nazi concentration camps. He found, from his own observation, that the prisoners who broke down and died most quickly had few commitments in their lives outside of those concentration camps. The ones who survived had something to live for, a commitment, a purpose, outside the camps that gave them the strength to keep going. 
Today is International Animal Rights Day. Animal rights advocates around the world are seeking to persuade people that kindness and respect are owed to all sentient beings. This, of course, includes animals. Most people understand that animals can feel pain. Many also believe animals can feel and perceive feelings. For these reasons, it's important to realize that, like humans, animals deserve to have rights. To do everything they can to guard animal rights, activists believe humans should number one stop thinking of animals as human property and think of Them as companion animals instead of pets. Number two, abstain from all animal use, which includes meat, leather, milk, wool, and silk. Number three, stop experimenting on animals. Number four, stop using animals for entertainment and sporting events, which includes rodeo, greyhound races, horse racing, using them in movies and in circuses, and putting marine animals on display. And number five, animal rights activists also believe that humans should not hunt. Fish or wear fur. Animal lovers around the world celebrate this day by holding candlelight vigils to draw attention to the Universal Declaration of Animal Rights. And here are today's words to the wise: Radiate positive energy. Today's words to the wise: Radiate positive energy. You can find this and more in my brand new book. Words to the wise. I'm Freddie Bell. This is New Beginnings, and we'll be right back. You're listening to New Beginnings. New Beginnings with Freddie Bell. Happy weekend, everyone. I'm Freddie Bell, and you're listening to New Beginnings. And joining me right now is our career expert, Mr. Joe McKenzie. He turns candidates into contenders. You can find him online at RippleConnects.com. And by the plain old telephone system seven six three four three eight one six two one. Happy holidays to you, Mr. McKenzie. Thank you, Freddie Bell. Happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you so much. And、uh, as we go into the holidays, a lot of people are talking about gift giving and being and making merry and just being with friends.、Uh, your topic today says the gift. Which way are we going today? Well, you know, this has been our ongoing segment with your book, Words to the Wise, and I thought it'd be appropriate here near the holidays to have the gift and in your words to the wise, find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Where are you going with that? What What do you mean by finding the extraordinary in the ordinary? I think I'll answer it this way:、uh, If I were to ask you what is ordinary, what would you tell me? Things that I do around the house for my family, or just you know, laundry, the the pets,、um, driving to go get milk、uh, for the family. That that's the, my gut reaction to your question, Freddie Bell. And then you talk to you turn candidates into contenders, and you're helping people to go to that next phase or to go to a different company altogether. And and I would imagine that you help them to do some introspection to find out. What their worth really is, and what their contributions could be to that company—is that right? Absolutely, that's a critical part of、uh, bringing the best out of my clients. Is for them to think about where they've been, what they've accomplished, and where where they could take that skill set. Well, I would suspect, and when I wrote the words "find the extraordinary" or "the extraordinary" and "the ordinary." Every one of us go through our lives, and sometimes we go through it sleepwalking. And what I mean that、uh, we get up each morning, as you just mentioned,、uh, we、uh, start our day, we put our clothes on the same way in the same manner in the same length of time. 
And uh, we are really ordinary, so to speak. But once we start to peel the layer back, we're sitting across with someone usually, and maybe it's a pressure situation like trying to find a new opportunity or being promoted in your organization, then the introspection starts, right? So you're saying, okay, how can I convince someone to see the real gifts that I have? And in my line of work, when I bring people into the broadcast business, I expect that everyone that I'm sitting across from has some type of extraordinary gift that our company would benefit from being a part of. And I hold the idea, Joe McKenzie, that everyone has not only one gift, but they have multiple gifts. And those gifts can be extraordinary. You've, you've floored me with that, just the fact that uh, you take the time to understand our gifts and to someone else's gifts. Um, I, I don't always feel like through the early parts of my career, I even knew what my gifts were. And you're, you're building an organization ba- uh, really that's based upon a lot of people's multiple gifts that they bring. And that's what I hear you saying. And so you're bringing it out of people. And some of those people that you're speaking with may not even realize that that would be considered a gift. Some people see themselves as a plain bag and nothing other than that until they're asked. And all of a sudden, when you're talking with them and you mentioned the bench of advocates, when you start to share what your attributes are, this plain bag suddenly starts to feel you go, oh, my goodness, that, yeah, I did do that. I did have this accomplishment. Yes, I, I didn't realize that anyone would think that that was of any real value, but I have a way of executing whatever it is that's different than what someone else might do. And those, Joe McKenzie, in my opinion, are the gifts that we bring not only to an opportunity like a job, but we bring that to our family. You know, the way that you happen to, maybe it's cutting the lawn, maybe it's shoveling the snow, maybe there's a technique, but it's a gift that can be shared. Now, the other idea is, can this extraordinary aspect of who you are be shared with someone else? Joe McKenzie, I would imagine there are some things in your life, your way of conducting your business that is unique to you that no one else does. Am I correct? You are. And, you know, I've talked to about being growing up in a big family, uh, being one of the youngest of eight kids, I brought a high level of curiosity to my questions. So my older siblings, my, my parents, that's one of the gifts that I bring to when I draw the best out of my clients. I'm curious, how did you develop that skill? I'm curious, how did you get into that industry? And often they're saying, no one's ever asked me that question before then I know I'm going in the right direction because I'm trying. I, what I'm trying to do is draw the greatness out of them to make it marketable, well, first and foremost, to allow them to realize what their gifts are, like you're, you're doing with your organization, but also how do they market it. And you're absolutely right, Freddie. Someone else's gifts uh, need to be drawn out because the world needs all of our gifts working together in unison to make a better, you know, better organization, a better community. And when we know what they are, then we're formidable because of our gifts that complement each other. Absolutely. When we're sitting across from someone, uh, and I know when I'm sitting across from someone, I'm looking for what's amazing about this individual. 
what mm-hmm. makes I'm, I'm curious about what it is that makes this person just an exceptional individual. What's fantastic about this person? What's incredible about this individual and what makes them marvelous and what's odd about them that is so odd that it becomes into it turns into a magnificent aspect of who they are. And once I find out those things, whether it's in business or whether it's interpersonal relationships, I think that both of us benefit well because it may be that uh, heretofore, maybe no one has even asked them about that aspect of who they are. And I believe that's how we turned, we find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Unfortunately, Joe McKenzie, we got to leave it right there. And I really admire the work that you do with Ripple Connects. I appreciate that, Freddie Bell. And yes, we turn candidates into contenders. It's always a pleasure being with you each week on New Beginnings. You can follow me on Instagram, Freddie Bell Radio. Join the conversation on Twitter. Just tweet me, at Freddie Bell. You can also visit our website, FreddieBell.com. It's time for a little fun. Did you know there are almost 10,000 traffic circles in the United States? And once engineers figure out how to put fast food restaurants around them, we'll see many, many more. There's a new survey that says that men outspend women by 14% during the holiday season. Think about that. With the holidays here and inflation still running pretty hot, many consumers are likely making fewer purchases and giving fewer gifts while spending roughly as much as they did collectively last year. That breaks down to an average of $1,455 spending this year per household, according to a holiday retail survey by Deloitte. Americans are expected to purchase an average of nine gifts down from 16 last year, while also pulling back on non-gift purchases like holiday decor. Inflation is also driving more people to choose gift cards as presents to make it easier to spread their holiday budget. We rank everything from the best and worst movies to the best and worst cars, and there's even a ranking for the best and worst apples. According to the website AppleRankings.com, these are the best apples. Number six, Red Delicious. Number five, Wild Twist Apples. Number four, Snapdragon. Number three, Kanzi. Number two, The Honeycrisp. And number one, Sweet Tango. As we're into the throes of the holiday season, I'm wondering if you're considering buying a six-foot Christmas tree this week. Then you will need exactly 37 ornaments and an angel that's precisely seven inches high. The formula for decorating the perfect tree came from students at Sheffield University in the UK. The six-foot tree would also need 18 feet, 9 inches of light, and 30 feet of tinsel. And here are my four things that you didn't know, and it's time to level up your brain cells. Number one, a taste bud lives for 10 days. Number two, light roast coffee has more caffeine per bean than dark roast. The average color of the universe is a shade of beige, astronomers have dubbed Cosmic Latte. And number four, the lint that collects in the bottom of your pockets has a name. It's called Nur. Just for fun this week. 
That's our show, and thanks to our special guests for stopping by and sharing information that we hope can change lives. If you missed any of today's show, you can subscribe to our podcast or just Google Freddie Bell or stop by my website of the same name. Thanks for listening, and remember that each day is a chance for a new beginning. See you next week.